This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Turismo de Lisboa. The Iberian Peninsula offers some of the best birding in Europe, and Lisbon, Portugal is an excellent gateway to it all. Located at the mouth of the Tagus River with exceptional birding just a short distance away, Lisbon is a paradise for migratory waterbirds with wintering flamingos, storks, raptors, and more. And it's one of the most affordable cities in Europe. For more information on what you can expect from Portugal's capital, be it cultural or birding highlights, go to visit Lisbon. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. I don't know about you, but the last month or so, it feels like it has been full of some pretty depressing bird news. First, there was the ABC Cornell study about the three billion lost birds. We actually talked about that last time in the podcast. I I would encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. I I felt like it was a good conversation. ABC's Jordan Rudder and uh, of course our own Ted Floyd. That was also followed not long after by a Audubon report regarding the threat to North American birds due to climate change. There's also been sort of the dread of month after month of record-breaking summer temperatures and the associated crazy bird records in northern parts of the continent, which, you know, don't get me wrong, is the sort of silver lining to this enormous dark cloud. You know, I, as a birder and naturalist, am sort of morbidly fascinated by this planet-wide lab experiment that we're all sort of part of and extremely concerned about how it is shaking out. I'm generally not an anxious person, but it is hard not to give in to some anxiety. I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in all that. But I did see some very exciting good news come across my computer the other day, and that is that the Kirtland's Warbler, that jack pine specialist that famously breeds in central Michigan, is being removed from the endangered species list. And it is not one of those politically motivated removals. Those tend to manifest as a failure to even get on the list in the first place. But uh, it's actually due to a population that has, in the last few decades, Uh, more or less stabilized. There are a great many local, state, federal organizations that that know how to maintain that very specific scrubby pine habitat and are interested in doing so. Uh, The brown-headed cowbirds, which for decades were sort of the bane of Kirtland's warblers, they actually trapped them and euthanized them. That's how seriously they took it. They are less of a problem with a more robust population where we uh, apparently are right now. We are talking about a bird that, you know, in the 1950s was down to 20 singing males left. And now the number is 100 times that, which granted doesn't feel like a lot. But this is a legitimate success story. And, and that should be celebrated along, alongside things like bald eagles and peregrine falcons and wild turkey. Fire suppression was one of the main reasons why the population had declined to those low numbers. An active fire management and perhaps most important you know, an agreement with timber harvesting concerns to more or less mimic the effects of wildfire to the extent that the species, which was probably never numerous, is fairly stable. It does go to show how resilient birds are, given the opportunity. And that is good news. Legitimately so. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I could use it. On the show today, I'm going to talk a little bit about an experience I had recently where I, I got my eyes fixed I got, the, I got the LASIK, which as I understand it stands for lasers actually shot into corneas. It's corneas with a K, 
obviously. It's made me think a little bit about sight and birding. I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the end of the episode. But first, bird vocalizations are not necessarily a new frontier in ornithology, but so much of the work done has been done on male birds. And as it turns out, those melodious songs in your neighborhood are frequently coming from females as well. The work of Dr. Lauren Benedict is changing the way we think about bird vocalizations. She is with me after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first half of October 2019. This might be our last check-in with the Bering Sea Islands of Alaska this year as birders are starting to head home. Some late notables include gray wagtail and hawfinch on St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs and Siberian ruby throat on Gamble. And on the mainland, a white-tailed eagle, the old world equivalent of our familiar bald eagle, was seen in Nome, one of only a few records for the mainland of this species. I have a couple first records to report, and both are flycatchers, which is not terribly uncommon for this time of year. In Alberta, the province's first record of ash-throated flycatcher was seen near Edmonton, where it has already survived some negative 10 degrees Celsius overnight temperatures by finding a fruiting tree, which is a favorite for these out-of-season flycatchers. And in New Jersey, a state-first Cassin's Kingbird was seen from the Hawkwatch platform at Cape May because... Where else in New Jersey would a rarity show up? We noted last week that Illinois also had its first state, Cassin's Kingbird, at a migration hotspot, uh, Montrose that time, uh, which makes me wonder what individual spot in the ABA area might be the best for rare birds. I'd have to think that the Cape May Hawkwatch would be on the short list for sure. Speaking of short lists, this is a short look at the Rare Bird Reports the last couple of weeks. For all the rarities you can handle, go to the ABA blog, blog.aba.org, every Friday morning. You can also check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. The incredible variety of birdsong in a morning chorus on a spring or summer day is a phenomenon that a lot of birders are familiar with, but even after decades, centuries even, of study, there's still a lot we don't know about bird vocalizations. For instance, female birds sing too, and their vocalizations are frequently as complex and important in the lives of those birds as the songs we associate with male birds, and it's only relatively recently that we've sort of begun to really look into that. Dr. Lauren Benedict from the University of Northern Colorado has been on the cutting edge of this science. She is with me now to talk about her work with bird vocalizations and female birds in general. Uh, thanks for joining me, Lauren. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. How how prevalent are female bird songs? Is there you know specific groups of birds that they're they're more common in than others? Yeah, there are. So uh, for those of us who live here in North America in a temperate zone. You know, it doesn't seem that prevalent. Uh, If you lived in Australia or if you lived in South or Central America, you would think that female birdsong was just as common as male because in a lot of those places it is. So it's quite prevalent in tropical areas and in many of the tropical areas of the world. Yeah, uh, females sing just as much as males do. But despite this bias in female birdsong prevalence kind of across the world, it's actually pretty common in temperate areas as well. If you look just across North America in kind of the United States and Canada ABA area, you find that more than 40% of all of our songbirds, our passerines, have female song. And I think if you had to guess, I'd say that's probably an underestimate because I think it's overlooked in a lot of places. And in those 40% that do have female song, we know very little about it. 
And we'd love to know more about when females are using it, how they're using it, how common it is. Given all of that, the kind of current estimate is that across the world, about 65% of species maybe have singing females. Yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So so why do you think it has taken so long to sort of acknowledge the the presence of female bird songs? Why it, it feels like this is information that um is rel- only relatively recently been that people have sort of realized. Yeah, and it's funny. It's kind of new to us, us who live here in North America. Yeah. I was chatting with an Australian recently and he said, "This isn't news to us. We know that females sing." <laughs> but there's been a real bias in kind of who is publishing and making a lot of kind of noise about their own research. And Europeans and Americans tend to do that. (laughs) And we think that females sing less. Uh, But that's just because we live in a place where females sing less. And that's not true across the world. So there's kind of a geographic bias to it, for sure. Yeah. And then there is also a history in science of, you know, males being kind of the the major study organism. Right. Yeah, it it is so funny when you think about I don't know if this is just true in natural sciences or maybe it's just like a general science thing that in some ways, so much of the initial work that was done was done in like the you know 18th and 19th centuries. And so in a lot of ways, we're still dealing with sort of like 18th and 19th century biases <laughs> with yeah. regard to, you know, how <laughs> how birds operate. You know, there's these gender biases that were more common back then than maybe, you know, we're starting to question them in the 21st century. And it seems like it's it's relevant in, in for birds as well. It seems like it's happening with birds in addition to everything else. It is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for lots, for a long time, males were the important study organisms and females were thought to sort of, oh, yeah, well, they probably do what males do or they do something different, but it's unimportant. Um, But in fact, females do all kinds of fascinating things that might be different from males. They might be the same, but if we don't look closely, we don't even know. Right. Yeah. You know, we certainly have an idea of why male birds sing to establish territories and attract female birds to those territories. That's probably a very broad explanation of it. But are there any theories about why female birdsong evolved, you know, if it did so in a way that is sort of different from male birdsong? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And uh, in fact, we know a little bit about the evolutionary history of song in perching birds, in passerines, the ones that we think of as the little tweedy songbirds. And in that group, we think that the ancestor of that group had female song. So it's not that males gained fancy song and suddenly got all elaborate and special. It's that males and females sang in the ancestors. And in some groups, probably when they started migrating and moving into the north temperate zones or south temperate zones, uh, they lost song. So there must be some reason that females do better without song in some of those places. Uh, That's interesting. I wonder if that's sort of related to... um you know, plumage too, you know, male birds and a lot of passerine species have bright plumage as well. Do you think that those sort of might've been, you know, occurring together? Like those some might be related in some way? Yeah. And there is, there's good research asking exactly that question. When females lose song, do they also become uh, duller in color, right? Less bright, less elaborate. And the answer to that is generally yes. (laughs) When they have more elaborate songs, they also often tend to have more elaborate colors. So species that have really different appearances also have really different song behaviors and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the the most interesting things that you've learned about bird song in female birds in the in the time that you've been looking at it. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting that it's 
first of all, that point that I made before that females have lost song because we often mm-hmm. look at male song and say, okay, it's elaborate. It's fancy. Why is it that evolution has made males so fancy? But that's kind of the wrong question. It should instead be, why is it that some females have moved away from that signal? And the ones that kept it, uh, how are they using it? And they're using it in all the same ways that males are, which I think is really interesting. So there are some females that sing to attract mates. There are some females that sing to defend territories. There are some females that duet with their partners in really fascinating ways. So males and females can coordinate vocalizations. And I think that kind of the mechanics of all of that is super interesting. Yeah, I remember the first time I ever sort of witnessed that was on my my very first trip to the tropics uh, several years, many years ago. And um, it was uh, one of the wood wrens. I forget, Mm. this was in Costa Rica. And like they were singing this kind of ratchety song and it was coming from one bush. And then the second part of it was coming from another bush, like very nearby. But you could hear them, the rhythm kind of going back and forth and back and forth. And I guess until that point, I didn't really think about female birds singing, even though even though they did where I you know, in North America, where I was, where I had grown up and started birding. Yeah. Um, You know, wrens seem to be a species that does a lot of that. Is there a reason why tropical wrens seem to be more inclined to doing those sort of duetting behaviors than say our, um, you know, the one that I have in my backyard, Carolina wren? Yeah. Tropical wrens are amazing. Some of those tropical wrens, as you say, I mean, it sounds like one bird going back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Not even taking a breath. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You can look up plain-tailed wren duets and things like that. What's really cool, this is a bit of an aside, and I will get to your question, but first of all, what's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Some people have looked at the brains and what neural, you know, activity is kind of controlling this. And when they look at those wrens that are duetting so tightly in time like that, they find that their brains are firing just the same way that they would if they were singing the entire song, but they're each only singing half of it. So it's like in their mind, they're singing their partner's song. But then in reality, they're actually only producing their song. Wow, that is really cool. (laughs) Yeah, so the way that they're coordinating it uh, is super interesting, both the way they actually sing and then also how the brain makes that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But back to the question of why we think (laughs) (laughs) why the Carolina wren uh, sings a little less. It seems that migration is connected to duetting behavior. And when animals are migrating, they're less likely to have a lot of female song and they're less likely to have those complicated duets. And this might be because migration is hard and so you can't invest in things like song because when you get to the north, wherever it is, north breeding area, uh, you have to spend a lot of time breeding and you can't focus on song. So that's one of the theories. Uh, The other possibility is that holding a territory year-round is hard, and males and females both need Mm. to sing in order to be able to do it in those dense tropical areas where there's a lot of competition for that territory. And so two individuals together coordinating songs and both singing really well will help them defend that territory and have the year-round resources they need better. 
Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm reminded, and, and you can tell me whether I'm completely off base on this or not, but I'm reminded of a, a, something I read. This may have been on something, some sort of nature documentary about birds in uh, Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in Papua New Guinea, birds of paradise, bowerbirds, they have these really elaborate breeding behaviors. In the case of the birds of paradise, it's these crazy songs and sounds and displays. And the bowerbirds, they build these cool bowers. Mm-hmm. And one of the explanations for that was that there is so much naturally occurring food in this, in Papua New Guinea, that they are able to, they don't have to spend all this time looking for, looking for food. They can actually develop these sort of really elaborate behaviors around, you know, breeding. Mm-hmm. Is, is there something similar potentially going on in the tropics, um, in, in the American tropics with wrens? Because there's, there is so much food, it's relatively easy to find, and they're able to evolve these kind of more elaborate behaviors that we do not get in North America where, you know, we've got six months of the year in some places where it's actually very difficult to find food. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. You know, I haven't thought about that applied in this situation. Most of these wrens are monogamous. So the ones that are duetting mm-hmm. like this with lots of female song, they're monogamous. So right. in those yeah. pop in all of the bowerbirds and those birds of paradise, which are amazing, they're not monogamous, and the females yeah, sort of can take... Yeah, famously the opposite of that. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Once the female does all the parenting work, then the males are kind of freed up to just spend all their right. time courting females. And with hmm. the most of the duetting species, that isn't usually the case. And instead, they're working yeah. together to be parents. So hmm. I think in some ways, it's more pressure for them to signal to each other. It's not just that males need to signal to females something, but females need Mm -hmm. to signal right back. And they're kind of mutually assessing each other and making sure that each partner is there in these situations. And that can drive the duetting and the need for females to sing and really show males that they're good potential mates and to show other females that, hey, this is my territory. I'm here. Uh, Stay away. Yeah. We're we're both in different parts of the United States, but what birds do we have that do some sort of duetting behavior that uh, people who might be listening would be familiar with? Yeah, so there aren't as many that do, none of the North American species do those really tightly coordinated duets where Mm -hmm. it sounds like one bird, you know, singing in unison. Um, But there are some really cool North American duetters. One of my favorites is the very modest and nondescript California towhee which uh-huh. I studied um, for years, and they have this funny kind of squealing sound. Uh, I, I wish I could imitate it well. I'll do my best. <laughs> it's kind of a choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo noise. And that's actually a duet. Uh, in that species, males sing a kind of tink-tink-tink-tink-tink-tink song, and then as soon as uh-huh. they get a mate, they stop singing that song, and the primary vocalization they use is this funny duet, this squeal duet. And it's not just California toeys, huh. it's Aberts and Canyons and all of those kind of brown in color toeys. Brownie toeys, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Is there something about that? I mean, these are all kind of southwestern, western species. I think of especially, you know, Canyon and Aberts as, uh, you know, being kind of desert scrubland species. Is there something about the habitat that sort of inclines them towards that behavior or is it just that's sort yeah. of random? I think it's something about being um, kind of part of that group, that their ancestor evolved Mm -hmm. this way of communicating with their mates, and then they've all maintained it, despite the fact that they've split into multiple species. They're still doing this behavior Mm -hmm. that seems really important. They use it to coordinate. What's interesting with them is every time, so either the male or the female can start the duet, 
And when one of them starts it, the other one joins in and they always fly towards each other. So it's definitely a, huh. a come on yeah, over here kind of signal. Right. Yeah. Huh. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. I always think of Northern Cardinals as being a, uh, a bird that does a lot. Well, females, female Cardinals sing a lot. They um, do. Is there a way that you can differentiate the male songs from the female songs or do they sing similar songs? They actually sing very similar songs. I personally, mm -hmm. if I'm hearing something, can't tell you if it's a male or a female. And mm -hmm. there has been research. There was one very cool study that raised Northern Cardinal males and females and allowed them to hear the songs of males and females to try and figure out, mm -hmm. okay, do males only learn male songs and females only learn female songs? And they could learn anything. Oh, wow. So huh. females can actually learn to sing the song of a male in their neighborhood. Males can learn to sing the song of a female in their neighborhood. So they really don't sound different, which is kind of an interesting thing there. Are there any species where the female actually sings more than the male? There are a few, yeah. Huh. Um, Stripe-headed sparrows are one okay. that jumps to mind. And some orioles also. Orioles have a lot of female song, and, and there's wow. been good documentation in some species there. Wow, yeah. that's pretty interesting. I, you know, there's a lot of, but it'd be difficult to tell because some female orioles actually are very colorful. They quite like, like young male orioles. It'd be really hard to tell if you heard something singing. You know, I always assume that it's the male, but there's no reason to yeah. think and of I, this. Yeah. yeah, I was just going to say, I think a lot of people jump to that conclusion immediately, right? You mm -hmm. hear a singing bird, you assume it's a male. And yeah. that's particularly true in species that look the same, right? You, females and males, essentially, you can't tell them apart by eye. So if you look at a black-capped chickadee and you hear it sing the Phoebe song, mm -hmm. you think, oh, must be a male. Yeah. And most of the time it is, but females also sing that song. You and um, you and Dr. Karen Odom published a paper in the AUK uh, last year called uh, "A Call to Document Female Bird Songs" with a whole lot of whole list of sort of fascinating applications. Uh, what sort of questions do you think knowing about female bird songs will help you answer? I think it can really help us answer a lot of questions. For so long, bird song as a model system has been really important for everybody trying to understand how animals learn different signals how their brains work, how they yeah. remember these signals, how they use them. But 95% of that research has been on males, again. Right. So everything we're learning as kind of the canon of how song works is males. And for females, if we start to study them both, we can look a lot at how, how it is that they produce the sounds they produce. Are males and females similar hmm. in their anatomy and physiology? We can learn a lot about how their learning and memory works. Do mm -hmm. males and females learn songs the same way? So like with the cardinal example you just asked about, they seem to be able to learn each other's songs. But one thing that's a little different is that females learn their songs earlier and have less flexibility to learn songs later in life than males do in that species. Huh. Yeah, and I, I have no idea if that's a general rule across birds because the research has only been done on that one species. Wow. You, you and Dr. Odom put together this uh, female bird song project. Um, so what, what are you trying to accomplish with this? Yeah, we um, would love for citizen scientists to contribute and to be part of this ultimate goal of learning more about female song form and function. And there are so many opportunities <laughs> to go out and record songs anywhere, especially these days that you can just record birds with a cell phone. Yes, yeah, super you know, easy. <laughs> a good recording app. Yeah. Exactly. 
And the thing about female song is that it does occur in North America less frequently than male song. So we have to have a lot of ears listening for it and eyes looking. And our first kind of call to action is if you hear a singing bird, don't assume it's a male. Take a good look at it. And if you have a, a good reason to believe it's a female, either because based on its plumage, it looks like a female or because of some behavior, maybe it's building a nest, it's incubating, something like that, um, then record it and document that. And you can upload all of these things through the Macaulay Library in eBird. Mm-hmm. And if you upload it through eBird, you can tag it with for the female bird song project. You can just put that in the comments yeah. and it'll come to us and it'll be used by scientists studying this question all over the world. Yeah. So, so a lot of times it does require you to actually get a look at the bird that's singing. Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. that's got to be difficult, especially in those species where the where the sexes look very very much the same. So how how do you figure that out? Do you, does it require that observation of the behavior, or can is there you know other any assumptions that you can make? Yeah, that is really hard if they look the same. And yeah. even I will say, even in species where males and females look different, occasionally um, you might have a bird in a plumage that's a little uncertain. You're like, that looks kind of like a female, but maybe it's just a juvenile male. We realize that that happens. But better to upload it and document everything that you notice and why it might possibly be a female, just so that other people can then look at it and make an educated decision about Mm -hmm. whether or not they want to use that. And with species that truly are monomorphic, males and females, you can't tell them apart, it's really that behavior piece for sure. So in some species... Only females incubate. If you watch them long enough, maybe you, I don't know, are lucky enough to see a copulation and then you know who's the male and who's the female. Yeah. (laughs) Or perhaps there are other behavioral cues. Yeah. So is there any other sort of female bird specific research going on? I mean, it feels like that if we've overlooked this sort of vocalization angle for so long, there has to be a ton of other stuff that we could be exploring as well. There is. And I think this is really an important kind of new frontier for ornithology right now. So there are lots of people looking at things like hormones and how those affect birds and how male and female hormone profiles differ and how different kinds of hormones might be causing different behaviors in the two. And there's there's a lot of fascinating work on that. There's also really interesting research on things like migration patterns, which we've known for a long time can be different. In males and females, so often on, you know, during spring migration, the males come through first. They're trying to get up north and get those territories early. Then females come through later. Um, but there's also things like at in their wintering grounds, males and females sometimes actually go to slightly different wintering grounds. And huh. this can be really important. Uh, I saw a fascinating talk by this uh, on this topic by Ruth Bennett, who's at the Smithsonian, where she pointed out that most of the research that's done on sort of tracking migrations and looking at where birds are wintering is done on males. Hmm. And if we're identifying wintering grounds of males, but not females, then conservation efforts might be less effective than they could be because you're not getting the range of the entire species. Sure. Is there, is there a species where that, where that occurs? An example? Yeah. In fact, (laughs) so off the top of my head, I can't remember the one that she gave a bunch of examples (laughs) where she knew (laughs) there are many examples where there are uh, differences in male and female wintering grounds and all of the conservation plans 
only described the wintering ground, and there was only one conservation plan that had both males and females included, but I can't oh, wow. remember the species. Yeah, I, I, mean, yeah. I know like, you know, ducks do that. Because, uh, you know, the males mm-hmm. go through that eclipse plumage. I guess the females do too. But the, the males will kind of congregate in some places and they'll do this, you know, this brief flightless period. And in some species, like it's only relatively recently that we figured out where they're even going. It's sort of fascinating stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there are a lot of species that we still don't know for sure where they're spending their winters. That's wild. So what are you what are you working on now? What are you planning on? What is what is sort of a research question that you are most interested in at this point? I my current field studies involving female song are on canyon wrens, mm-hmm. which are such a great study species. They're a lot of fun. Of course, everyone knows and loves <laughs> the male song. The classic song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, they just ring off of the walls of canyons with that beautiful cascade of the male. Uh, females sound really different. And this is one of the few species that I know of in which male song and female song is really distinctly different. So Females have this kind of buzzy song that first rises in pitch and then descends a little bit. And I and and some other colleagues that I'm working with are trying to understand how females use this song. And the fact that it sounds different from male song suggests that they're trying to signal that they're females, right? Yeah, right. They're not just doing the same thing as males. They're indicating something else with that song. And they use it pretty infrequently. They don't just sing spontaneously all that often. But if you play the sound of a female canyon wren to a female canyon wren, she responds right away by singing really? back at you. Wow. Yeah. With the same song, that buzzy song. That same buzzy song. And interestingly, wow. the male does not sing his male song. Huh. He huh. might appear and look around as if he's interested. He might call a little bit, maybe trying to get his mate to come deal with this problem on their territory, (laughs) Um, but she's the one who will sing back at it. So it's a really kind of sex-specific communication channel. Females are talking to females. (laughs) Right. Wow. So Dr. Lauren Benedict is at the University of Northern Colorado. You can find her on Twitter at Lauren Benedict, Lauren with a Y. You can help her out by submitting your recordings of female bird vocalizations to the Female Birdsong Project. That is at femalebirdsong.org. Thanks a lot, Lauren. This was really interesting. Yeah, thanks. It was great talking to you. I did not plan to get lasers shot into my eyes. The opportunity just kind of fell into my lap. I have, since I switched over to contact lenses in high school 20-odd years ago, been pretty happy with my corrected vision, especially with regards to birding. But I was with my kids at a music festival in downtown Greensboro, North Carolina, where I live, and I was asked by someone in a booth if I wanted to sign up for a drawing for free LASIK surgery. I said, sure, not expecting that I'd actually win. But a few days later, they called, told me I hadn't won the grand prize, but I'd won some second place prize, which was a deep discount. I needed to come in for the free consultation. Sure, I said, why not hear what they have to say? So I get there, and they tell me I'm a great candidate. Uh, Yeah, I thought to myself. And then they told me that someone had canceled the next day, and if I wanted to take that spot, they'd take a pretty hefty part of the price off in addition to my drawing prize. This thing, which I'd always figured was too much money, was suddenly sitting in my lap. I would not get a better opportunity. So one brief phone call to my wife later, I was agreeing to come in the next day to get lasers shot into my eyes. This was about a month ago, and things are settling in. And it's given me some time to think about how critical vision is to my own 
birding. That's not to say that vision is essential to birding. We, we all ear bird to a great extent, and there are some great birders who can't even see at all. But I am a sighted birder, and to be honest, the idea that I would be undertaking a procedure wherein there is a possibility, even one that is super small, that I would screw up my eyes gave me a little pause while I was barreling toward the lasers, even though the whole thing happened so fast that it barely had time to really register. Noah Stricker wrote a post for the ABA blog about his own experience with LASIK surgery. The link is in the show notes. And one thing that he noted that I hadn't considered was that 2020 is average, which means that 50% of the population is on the blurrier end of the curve. So think about that the next time you're in the field. The truth is that many birders around you are seeing a completely different world than the one that you are seeing. My corrected vision with contacts was slightly better than 2020. And while I don't think that that made me a better birder, I do think it contributed to the perception of others that I was a better birder, simply because I was able to see things without binoculars that they needed binoculars to see. Most birds are not terribly difficult to identify, given a fair look, and I was able to identify those faster than people with worse vision could. That's not to say they couldn't, because they definitely could, but I could do it faster. This made me look good. And I've been on the other side of it, too. Uh, This summer, for instance, I was riding in an airport shuttle with a young birder, and he pointed out some distant swallows that I literally could not see, despite really searching for. You know, for most of the population, the difference between 2020 and, say, 2015 is splitting hairs. But for birders, it can make the difference between a naked eye ID and needing binoculars. Above average vision is a definite advantage to a birder and not one that I was super keen on compromising. And to be honest, those first few days, even the first week while my eyes were still healing, I was worried that I had made a huge mistake. You know, squeamish people might want to skip forward a few seconds, but I'll give you a, I'll give you a second. But, you know, when they shoot the laser at your eye, they make a little flap that they flip off and then they zap your corneas, right? So I had a little bit of pooling of blood underneath that flap that was making my vision in my left eye blurry. And it took a little while to heal. But now that it has, that eye is good and together my vision is as good as it was corrected with contacts. So that's really all I can ask for. As for birding, I went out a couple times in that first week specifically to test this new vision. Uh, and even if it was at the time, you know, slightly below what it is now, it, to be honest, it didn't really affect much. You know, as always, most of my birding is by ear. And it was super amazing to pick out chimney swifts passing overhead or, or follow a Carolina chickadee through a sweet gum with my own eyes for the first time since I was in elementary school. I think that I am going to end up really liking this. Anyway, I'm leading a handful of trips for a small local birding festival this week to to really put my birding chops to the test. Um, We'll see after that if I've still got it. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast and the other free resources that the ABA provides to birders, the best way to help support them is by joining the ABA. Membership benefits include our fantastic magazines, opportunities to join us for ABA events, discounts to our partners like Beauty of Books, and the knowledge that you 
can contribute to a vibrant and active burning community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. Learn more at ABA.org join or check out our e-memberships at ABA.org e-member. Special thanks to Catherine Cudahy of Austin, Texas, Kevin McDonald of Houston, Texas, Sean Sullivan and Samantha Robinson of Blacksburg, Virginia, Beverly Schneeman of Durham, North Carolina, John Roberts of Orlando, Florida, Nicole Nigel of Preston, Connecticut, Daniel Young of Edgewater, Florida, and Jason Schultz of Thurmont, Maryland, all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much and welcome or welcome back to the ABA. Executive producer of this podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He points out that the frequent Paraline typo of Kirkland's Warbler is finally appropriate because you really can get three dozen of them for $24.99, but you do have to be a member. Technical production is by John Lowry. He notes that when the female California Tohi does their distinctive song, it's probably more appropriate to note that it is a California Toher. And if you don't know, and let's be honest, most of the time we don't know with this species, probably safest to say California Tohey. That one is for my non-binary listeners out there. I see you, friends. Extra internet help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They observed that Woodhouse's scrub jay essentially looks like a blurrier version of California scrub jay, and that a birder who sees the former immediately followed by the latter could be said to have gone through JSIC. I'm so sorry. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birder, and on Twitter at ABA. We're going to be doing a live podcast at the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival next month. This is on November 9th. If you're going to be at the festival, please come see us. Tell me hello. We'll have some fun stuff planned. Come hear me make terrible jokes in person this time so I can see your ridiculously exaggerated eye rolling in person. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.